Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Adam, it sounds a lot like, it sounds a lot like you need a blonde hair dye because you sound like a little pussy ass bitch. It's Monday, which means it's time for the Front 3 Weekend Review with me, Adam Ball, with the one and only Lawrence McKenna. Uh, happy Monday. Happy Monday to you too, Dave O'Brien. Yeah, happy Monday to you too, Adam Ball. Will you, will you get some energy, mate? It was a long weekend, mate. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling Adam, a little bit your tired your mentality's right now. dropping. Um, you know, my mentality's Adam, all over the place. stop your mentality dropping. It was a Super Bowl. I stayed up to watch the Super Bowl, you know, and I'm feeling the Did effects. Did you watch it all? No, I didn't watch it all. Um, I probably watched the first quarter, and then I was like, I'm a bit tired now. I think I'll go to bed. And missed what I'm told. I'm reliably informed. is the greatest Super Bowl of all time, is what I've been told. Is that is that true, Dave? Did you watch the game? Yeah, yeah it was. It, it, yeah, it was great up until, what, eight minutes left in the game, and I was like, ah, it's over now. 28-12, Atlanta have got this. I'm going to go to bed now. I wake up, and there's a comp- the best, one of the greatest comebacks. I think it's the largest points difference ever um, turned over in Super Bowl history. 25 points, and I missed it. No team has ever come back from 10 points down to win a Super Bowl, apart from this one. Uh, did you watch it the most, is that? Yeah, I watched the first half. Is it Tom Brady? Is that the guy who... Did it? Yeah, yeah, it's Tom Brady. Yeah, yeah he did it. Um, Chris, Chris watched the whole thing uh, and was tweeting about it all night on the front three. Uh, that's why he's not here right now. You know, obviously he's feeling the effects. Um, but Chris will be back on Thursday. Don't panic. Let's talk about some real football though, shall we? Um, that's controversial. Ooh, that's dig, controversial. Dig it sorry. It's like Brexit all over again. <laughs> why has it always got to be a foreign manager? We'll come on to that. Um, first off, let's start with uh, the big story yesterday: Leicester humiliated said the headlines 3-0 by Manchester United at the King Power Stadium let's talk about the winners first Dave uh, we spoke about their lack of ruthlessness last week on the pod seems they were listening they were clinical for once against Leicester and Mourinho changed up the formation at least at the start um, what did you make of the way he set out his team yeah it was an interesting one on paper it very much looked like um, a 4-2-3-1 with um, McTyrian behind Ibrahimovic who played very well against uh, Wigan actually McTyrian in the second half, especially, you know, that goal that uh, he scored with Anthony Martial on the break was fantastic play as a, number, a counter-attacking number 10. But in fact, started with a 4-4-2. And it's quite interesting how the 4-4-2 has made a comeback in recent years. Obviously, Leicester City um, winning the title with that system, but looking very, very poor in their 4-4-2, the system. Other good examples, maybe Juventus, they were um, pretty pretty good against uh, Inter, Internazionale on Sunday night playing a 4-4-2. And of course, Red Bull Leipzig are playing a 4-4-2. So at the moment, it's a very comp- uh, sort of, 
a formation that's getting a lot better results than it has done in the past, considering, you know, the reason why it went out of the English game was because of the, the 4-5-1 that emerged with Mourinho, three-man midfield, um, you lose control of the game and so forth. But it was it was quite interesting from United to see Ibrahimovic next to Marcus Rashford, but it didn't quite work. And like you mentioned, they, they did change it up. Zlatan scored again as well. He's now, I believe, broken some more records, Dave. Uh, the first United player to reach 20 goals in a season since Robin Van Persie in 2013-14. And the oldest player to score 15 goals in the Premier League ever. Um, getting closer to that 20. Uh, I think we need to agree on the specifics because it looks like it's going to happen now and I need to mentally prepare myself for what I need to do. Yeah. Um, what did, uh, all we agreed on was going blonde, right? But firstly, there's nothing you, else um, specified. You, yeah, let's just renew the agreement now, Dave. Dave. I mean, Dave, can we just... Well, now I've got, now I've got to start thinking about it for real. Because, ooh. Exactly, um, but I'm just thinking, you know... You've got to, you've got to go... Blonde, mate. You've got to go... What do you it mean? Was, is it bleached blonde, did we say? Did... Bill Jones blonde. Oh, yeah, we said bleached blonde, mate. It's not hard. But, like, do I actually have to... Is there, like, a time limit on it? Is there a, a time frame for where I have to stay blonde for? It could be yeah, a day. so literally, you dye your hair... You, no, no, you dye your hair blonde, and then, mate, you have to let it grow out. Are you right? talking, like, proper, like, <laughs> I have to go down the hairdressers, get a proper job done? Or can I put yeah. in a spray? No. What about, like, a little spray or something? Absolutely not. No, no, no. Absolutely, Adam. I'm just saying these details you know, Adam, mate, at the time, so I'm just trying to to figure out what. <laughs> Adam, it sounds a lot like it sounds a lot like you need a blonde hair dye because you sound like a little pussy ass bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to get some details. That's all because I'm trying to work out the finer points of the agreement. Okay, uh, well, let me specified. be perfectly clear. Then you need to go to the hairdressers with Dave and I. Right. Dave and I need to be sitting there watching. You need and to be when filming it. Comes to it. Administering yeah, the blonde. Yeah. We need to be the ones doing it. Yeah. Do I need to like? Do, do, no, there's no chance you're doing any of the. You're you're not messing up my beautiful barnet, mate. mate. Even though it will be being very messed up. <laughs> it's at already that over, time. Adam. Adam, you might as well uh, just sign it off, mate. It's done. How long? How long does it take it to grow out? Just out of interest, do you reckon? That, that, well, depending on what kind of hair you've got, and you've got pretty shit hair, probably about six <laughs> to nine months. Mate, like I said, I've got a beautiful barnet. Oh dear. It's it's a depressing thought, but I'm just I'm now starting to confront the reality of it. So bleach blonde I actually hair. Think, I proper. do actually think you're going to look all right. Thank you. You're going to. I'll, I'll probably look better, mate. I'll look better. Um, let's talk about Leicester, though, Lawrence, because yet to win a game in 2017. They haven't scored in the last five games. Uh, a fourth successive defeat now leaves them two points off the bottom of the table. Uh, and the prospect of them being the first top-flight champions to be relegated since Manchester City in 1938 is now a very real possibility, is it not? No, genuinely, I think it is. A lot of people describe them as looking rudderless on the weekend. Um, I think uh, it, it, there's a few there's a few interesting perceptions of the way that um, Leicester play because obviously they they were very poor against a number of top sides, but then they played very well. Um, at other points in the season, you sort of wonder why. And I think we hit on it last season is that tactically a few teams have worked out a way to play them and not found them out, but sort of um, play around their deficiencies. And so Leicester are left without any defence for Huth and Morgan at the back, who do, do look quite flat-footed quite a lot of the time. And there's a lot to exploit there in that sense, because, well, I mean, they are two very slow defenders and they're two defenders who find it very difficult that if you, if you pull them out of position to get back into a decent position. Um, so... I see. I see the point of of what most other people are saying. I don't think the drop off should have been so severe. I still think Leicester have got the personnel to be a Premier League side, and I think Ranieri believes that. I I personally think when people sort of say you know that it's all gone, I find it a little bit difficult because they were playing Manchester United, one of the best teams 
um, and probably one of the most astute tactical sides in the league with with the same manager. So I'm going to judge them on the way they play sides who are probably about their level. And I think that probably means they'll stay in the league this season. Oh, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because I mean, I mean, Dave, obviously you watched the game. They're, they're clearly low on confidence. A number of those key players from last season are out of form. Jamie Vardy has only got five goals for the season. Riyad Mahrez, of course, doesn't look like the same player who terrified defences last season to win the PFA Player of the Year. I mean, we've spoken a number of times about the Kante effect, as it were, something that, that Robert Hoof pointed out before the weekend about how much they miss him. And it does seem, without him there... That... <laughs> Robert Hoof, they're giving the other side clues. <laughs> yeah. The problem, had, the, the thing you've got to explain yeah, um, is the lack listen, of Ngolo we are, Kante. we are slow. All right. <laughs> but he... We are, we're pretty slow. Without um, him. So, without him, we are... But without him, they're... German, fucked. Danny Drinkwater looks uh, looks lost, to be honest, and crucially, Leicester's defence, specifically Wes Morgan and Robert Hoof, Dave, uh, don't look the same, do they? I don't think it's, you know, Kante is a big a big uh, loss, obviously, you know, the way that he turns the ball over the ground, he covers how we, Leicester used to be able to press was all about how Kante used to be able to, um, you know, push you in the final third and then he'd have the speed to get back into position to sit next to Danny Drinkwater. And yes, they're massively losing that. But against United, the big thing that, really cost them was the the two wide players not tracking back. Mares and Musa were too lazy in defence. The amount of times United had, um, you know, counter-attacks versus their back four and you, you couldn't even see the two wide forwards retweeting or r- wide midfielders in this system, should we say. You know, Leicester playing their 4-4-2 was poor and that what that wasn't what Leicester were doing last year. You'd always have Albrighton, him dropping out of favour. It's kind of like a big issue. You know, their, their press is, is so broken compared to it being so structured last season and so compact. Now it's sort of like, Ogazaki, Vardy, and then maybe one of the mid-central midfielders will go, and then the rest of the team will be, you know, so disjoint, and there'll be massive space, and it's easy to play around. Whereas last year, because of Kante, because of their structure that was a lot better, it was easier for them to press in the final third and thus turn over the ball. They did do that against United, though, when United were playing the four-four-two. I felt like when United were in that system, there was too much space in between the uh, back four and the central midfielders um, and the two wide players, given that. Uh, Carrick had played there most of the season with Pogba and Herrera so they kind of expect him to be there and there was a big bit of space there and Leicester City in the first 20 minutes were, were kind of getting into that zone and causing United a bit of trouble um, you know there was a brilliant tackle from Bay on I think it was on Musa that was absolutely fantastic there was a situation where Leicester had nicked the ball and broke but when United did switch to the 4-2-3-1 with McTierian in the hole it kind of what it did uh, tactically was push Paul Pogba and Ander Herrera a little bit deeper which helped United it gave United a lot of more protection in front of their back four but also it, it let Henrik McTierian play as a number 10 where quite frankly in his United career he's played his best football at number 10 for me now um, you know we saw it against Wigan where he's fantastic on the break and we saw it again against Leicester City where it kind of the thing that with McTierney, he's a, he's a different attacking midfielder to stay the likes of Meza Ozil. Let's say Meza Ozil is a guy that likes to be involved in the play, likes to receive the pass, play a pass, and you know completes a lot in the final third. McTierney's more of your like he shoots, he creates chances, he takes players on. It's sort of like your high octane stuff. It's like you're, he's trying the moves that are like eighty percent, ninety percent are going to fail, but then when they come off, you score a goal out of it, and that's what he did. You know his goal was absolutely brilliant, gambling on a loose ball, going you know beating uh, Robert Hooth, brilliant touch around him, and then putting the ball in the back of net. But quite, what I quite liked was when he just moved to that position and he picked the ball up on the left-hand side deep in his own half, drove into midfield, played a 1-2 with Herrera, drove into the opposition's half, played a 1-2 with one matter, then put a ball across the box that Marcus Rashford should have scored, but he missed the, missed the target. But what I liked about that was the fluidity of Henrik Mkhitaryan, or Mkhitaryan, whatever you want to fucking call him these days, and in that role, um, how he gets around the pitch, but also his link-up with Zlatan. Zlatan's been poor in recent weeks with his build-up play. I thought Zlatan was very good against Leicester City. 
And it kind of makes sense with a player that's a bit closer to him, a player that can get ahead of him in um, Mkhitaryan that's, you know, runs the other way. When, when Zlatan's deep in midfield or where he's dropping in, you need someone to stretch him the other way. And too many times United, there's too many players coming to the ball. With Mkhitaryan at number 10, it helps him out a lot more. So, yeah, United were good, but Mkhitaryan was absolutely fantastic at number 10. And I want to see that midfield more. Herrera, Pogba and Mkhitaryan. Mm. United could then less than not. The question is now, Lawrence, is Claude Aranieri's time up at the club? He's now the bookmaker's favourite to be the next Premier League manager sacked. It seems almost unthinkable, but there are serious doubts over his ability to turn the situation around. And the reports emerging are that the squad are increasingly unhappy with his methods and tactics. Yeah, uh, I, I, I agree. I, I think the problem is from the outside that a lot of people are willing to put the boot in um, with Ranieri. They're sort of saying, I think some people feel vindicated by the way that um, they've seen the squad drop off. I think a lot of people predicted this anyway, but just earlier last season. Um, uh, the, the problem is they've sort of missed that boat now. They, they kind of, you're in a pretty bad position. It would have to be in the next week or so that they change their manager because otherwise um, you're really a bit too late. And I think a lot of other clubs have already changed and gone to managers who probably would have done a very good job with this Leicester squad, uh, considering what we've seen happening at Hull and Swansea. It's mad, isn't it? It's mad to think. But, you know, potentially that game against Swansea next weekend could be defining both for Leicester and for Ranieri's future. I um, don't think that is that mad. How's that that mad? I think that's fairly sort of no, not mad, standard, but, but sort of... The, the, the fall, the extent of the fall from last season. I think not everyone, really. as you said, but everyone I, predicted I, that they'd drop off. I think everyone did. But, you know, it was kind of a bit tongue-in-cheek. Oh, could Leicester get relegated? But now we're actually facing that possibility. It's funny how very often comedy becomes reality. Comedy comes from tragedy in many ways. Um, Swansea, wow, though. Adam, it's as if you're a media student. <laughs> yeah, in many ways. Um, Swansea playing Leicester next, uh, growing in confidence under Paul Clement. Um, they were minutes away from earning a point at Manchester City this weekend on Sunday as well. Uh, unfortunately, Gabriel Jesus struck once again. Two goals for him uh, to take the headlines for Manchester City, Dave. Um, it was looking like another case of points dropped at the Etihad Stadium until added time for Pep Guardiola. Um, continuing to tinker with the lineup a little bit. Uh, the stack doing the rounds is that he's made 80 changes to his starting lineup this season, 15 more than any Oof. other Premier League manager. Um, Fernandinho was a right back on Saturday, on Sunday, uh, and there's a feeling that he's he's still trying to find his best side. Maybe I think that City were dominant um, for most of the game. It just changed when he took he brought on Zabaleta for for, for Fernandinho, and I think he took off De Bruyne, um, and City kind of lost control and lost a bit of impetus in central midfield. And I think that's something that Guardiola needs to work on. You know, he used to at Barcelona he used to bring off, you know either Iniesta or Xavi and bring on Keita to see a game out. And he tried. he's trying to kind of do that at, um, at City when he's bringing off the likes of De Bruyne. But unfortunately, it's not quite working for him. So arguably, potentially needs to keep on these attacking players and just see a game out. City had a hat full of chances. City shouldn't have been 1-0 up. City should have been 3-4-0 up. Yaya Torre had a big chance in the penalty area. Um, you know, Sterling, Sane. There were chances all over the pitch. De Bruyne, and it's one of those things where City under Guardiola needs to be a little bit more cutthroat, um, especially in that penalty area. But also, they, Gabriel Jesus has is, is, been absolutely fantastic since joining City, and arguably the signing of January, signing of the January transfer window. It fits into the system. You know, Aguero isn't a false nine. Aguero is a, is a penalty box poacher striker who doesn't really drift off the centre-backs that well, doesn't really um, you know, get into midfield. But what you kind of 
what you see with Gabriel Jesus and what you saw time and time again against um, Swansea in the game before, I can't remember who they played, but you saw Gabriel Jesus coming off the centre-backs and coming into that pocket of space and therefore making it easier for City to, uh, to maintain the ball, but also giving them a lot of flexibility in that um, final third, you know, with Sane coming in, with Sterling coming in. It's difficult to defend against the false nine. I think a false nine is one of the best um, roles for a forward to take at the moment, given the um, the themes in modern football, the pressing and, and the ball retention. A false nine's perfect. And Gabriel Jesus is just a better false nine than Aguero. Puts in a better shift defensively, is better at drifting off and is better at completing passes. I think in the first half, um, he completed 90% of his passes, um, all sort of in that dangerous area where he's got two to three men around him and he retains the ball, then gets into the penalty area. But he took his goals, both of his goals, very, very well. Very insti instinctive finishes. And City have got a star on their hands in Gabriel Jesus. And I'd say Aguero's gone. In the summer, I, thought, I actually thought they were pretty mm. good as well, though. Well, came on, and obviously that's what that that pushing is what ultimately led to the goal. I think that yeah, they, obviously Aguero is a definitely a very good option, but I, I think the City performance didn't deserve to be only one goal up at the time when um, Swansea equalised the goal. Swansea score was fantastic. Gilfie Sigurdsson again, what he's been directly involved in fifty-two percent of Swansea's goals in the Premier League this season with uh, eight goals and seven assists. So he's been fantastic, and again, classic Gilfie Sigurdsson picking up the ball and just hitting it low from outside the area. But like I said before, I don't think City deserve to be in that position. And yes, Aguero came on. Yeah, he get you know he added a bit of a goal for it. Should have probably scored as well. Had a header that was, um, you know, very in the penalty area. That was a, a scoring a chance that he uh, hit straight at the goalkeeper. But yeah, I just think Jesus is a for City at the moment is a is a much better op option than Aguero. It's an interesting one because Guardiola has said they can play together, and we're yet to see that uh, starting for Manchester City. I mean, if Aguero did leave in the summer, Dave, uh, you put out the question. Did you not? Would you take him at Manchester United to United fans? Mm, put a poll out. Got some hate. Got, Got some, some hate. Nice. Sure. No, but how, how is Stephen Housen? 68% <laughs> said yes, they would take him at Manchester United. 32% said no. I'm assuming you're one of the 68% here, Dave. Um... So I kind of like, I definitely take Aguero as a striker. I think with Mourinho, it'd be, I think Mourinho is the type of manager that suits someone like Aguero, that's quite laissez-faire, that's quite chilled out. But, you know, you hit him with the ball, he'll score your goal. Sort of like a bit of a Diego Melito, but not a target man, someone that you want to hit to feet, but you can go long to to his feet and he will start to create things, the ball will stick to him. So, you know, he'd be perfect at Manchester United, on, you know, with Mourinho if Zlatan wasn't there. But again, you've still got that sort of nagging thought in the back of your head that this guy scored the goal that won City their first Premier League title in a long time. Was it, was it, it was Aguero, wasn't it, that made the impact? Oh, yeah. yeah Do you know, I think, though, I mean, the, the, the big problem being that a lot of people, so you, uh, Gabriel Jesus has burst onto the scene, and I think that's fantastic. He's, he is doing a great job, and I think you can tell Pep Guardiola is very happy with it. But no squad is just a one-striker squad, or should be a one-striker squad, and a lot of the teams in the league are struggling because of that. Spurs struggle and they lose Harry Kane. Liverpool struggle because they literally don't have a striker they feel they can rely on. Uh, Manchester United look different when they don't have Ibrahimovic on the pitch, and that can be a good or a bad thing. Uh, Chelsea without Diego Costa. You know, if they just relied on Gabriel Jesus, I don't think that squad looks as full. So, you know, we're talking about losing Aguero, but... <sighs> Is that realistic? I think that Guardiola's moved on bigger stars. Ronaldinho, um, you know, Samueletto was going to go in his first year. Uh, Deco was moved on. I think that Guardiola, he can be ruthless. And, and I'm not, I'm not questioning that... whether I'm not questioning whether he can be ruthless. I'm saying, who else do they have? Because essentially, Gabriel Jesus is still a very young player. I understand he could hit a really good run of form, but you want someone who 
is essentially uh, still a, a fantastic striker just behind him. So who who comes in? I mean, because if you do get rid of Aguero, you still need someone else in there. Yeah, I think that, well, that's the thing. I think in the summer, they definitely need to address that. I think one of the things that City kind of lost when they let Edin Zeko go was a bit of a physical striker, someone that they can change their style up to, and they've not really replaced that. Benteke, you know, you think of coming in. brilliant, Dave. Benteke, yeah, perfect, mate. Yeah, absolutely. Christian Benteke, after he scores 20 goals in the last 10 games for Palace and keeps them up. And, st- and they still go down. The, the club yeah. themselves have come out and said they had no intention of selling him after Aguero came out after the win and said, uh, you know, the club will have to decide if he has a place here or not. So, as you said, it remains to be seen, but um, could well be the beginning of the end for Aguero, uh, as many newspapers are saying. Um, it is 100% the end of Arsenal's title challenge, though, surely, after losing 3-1. <laughs> Nice transition boot, uh, to, uh, to Chelsea at Stamford Bridge on Saturday. Um, Chelsea, Dave, strengthening their grip on the Premier League title. I mean, it was a comfortable win in the end against a limp Arsenal side. Um, marking their they impressive... Just adjusting their grips, weren't they? Yeah, like, they're just, yeah still it's still the same yeah. grip. It's just, you know, shifted slightly. Um, but it does mark Ooh, an got, impressive... I've got, got a bit of a callus there on my hand. I think I'll just move my grip a little bit. Been holding on for so easy. long. Um, it does yeah. mark... <laughs> Or uh, it does show the culmination of that impressive turnaround for Chelsea since their three 0 defeat uh, to the Gunners in September, Dave. Yeah, it's, um, I think it's it's going. It's definitely, obviously, the title's probably out the window. I think the strange thing with Arsenal is that they appeared to have so much depth at central midfield at the start of the season, and injuries have now kind of cost them their starters. You're thinking of Santi Cazorla, who's been absolutely brilliant in the last two seasons, been really making Arsenal's midfield tick, making the whole team tick, and he's obviously been out injured, and he's a big miss. Mesut Ozil is one of those players where. When Cazorla's in the team, he gets assists. Like, a, it was crazy last season. I think there was, well, no, the season where he got Azil nearly beat Omri's record. I think he was on like 17 assists before Cazorla got injured. And after that, he got like a you know a handful, two more assists or something like that. But also you think of the replacement. Oxlade-Chamberlain came in. Is Oxlade-Chamberlain a very good central midfielder? For me, absolutely not. Um, I think the best stuff that he did uh, against Chelsea was when he was drifting from central midfield to other positions. And I just don't think he's a central midfielder. But unfortunately, Arsenal's lack of depth there, well, not a lack of depth, their perceived lack of depth and quality in that position means that he had to play there. And Coquelin, you know, he can destroy. He's good when he's playing next to Santi Cazorla, who can orchestrate everything, you know, orchestrate the attack, be the guy that's recycling the ball and creating. Without him, Coquelin is a very uh, one-dimensional player. And I think with, uh, you know, Wenger throwing a Wobi next to Ox at the, the end, you can kind of see that it's kind of gone for Arsenal. You know, what they should have done is try to overload uh, Chelsea centrally, um, playing quite narrow, a narrow system, potentially, you know, maybe a diamond or, or so forth. But they just didn't do that. And they were so, so poor. But fair play to Chelsea, counter-attacking again to perfection. They tried to play around and through them, though, didn't they? In the completely the wrong way. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the thing. You know, they were trying to play, you know, go wide and put crosses into the box, which it was fruitful. They did miss a few opportunities that, you know, Arsenal did miss a few big chances with their head. But that's kind of like not what you want to do against Chelsea. They're kind of strong down the flanks. You know, they've got the, those two wing backs that have been fantastic this year. If you hang anything into the box against, uh, you know, uh, Aspil Equator, Louise and Gary Cahill, you're probably going to lose if you've not got Olivier Giroud on the pitch. It's, it was a strange strategy from Arsenal, but their tempo was all wrong. They didn't really come out fighting they didn't really come out with any tempo any aggression it just it seemed like a classic Arsene Wenger performance in a way where they're a bit mm. toothless Very do you reckon flat. that's why uh, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain accidentally liked uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, that, that, that that tweet about Wenger being out or Wenger should you, go tell you what 
Premier League players need to stop putting their mobile phones in their pockets. Things, bad things happen when their phones go in their Crazy pockets. Things. I imagine them sitting on the bus going, hey, everyone, oops. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Um, I mean... Thank you, just being like, oh, fucking hell. Giroud, of course, got the, uh, the consolation. The third goal for Chelsea was a complete gift from Czech. Hazard, of course, fantastic for that second goal, uh, destroying Francis Coquelin, ironically. That first goal, though, was causing a lot of controversy. Lawrence um, because of the foul well was it a foul that's the question Alonso leaping in the air uh, I would have said elbow first uh, to take out Hector Bellerin um, I thought it was a foul but a lot of people saying to me you know it just looked bad Bellerin from a static position and the momentum of Alonso made it look a lot worse than it was I do think yeah I think I agree with that um, I, those sort of situations you can't really it's um, it, it, could you argue that's reckless? It's it's a difficult one because in real time, I don't think it looked like a foul, but every single replay afterwards, I thought made it clear that it was, but I got a lot of uh, controversial uh, opinions on Twitter afterwards after suggesting that. Um, a lot of people did not agree with me, it's safe to say. Um, Dave, where do you come well, down on this? Most of them Chelsea one? fans. <laughs> no, no. I, I think it's a foul. I really do. I think it's a foul. I think he's, uh, he's jumping... Um, with his arms in that position, it's a dangerous position. I think that's dangerous play, and obviously it can cost the fella. It can cost the fella in. So, like, it's, it's dangerous play. If you're jumping with your elbows up like that, it's a foul. For me, it's a foul. It's a stonewall foul. Like people saying, "I, oh, how are you supposed to jump with your arms up and whatever? Jump, but don't have your arms in that position. Like you have control of your body. He was out of control of his body. Dangerous play. You know, it was a foul. It, it, the goal shouldn't have been given. To be fair, and I think that's. Cost Arsenal momentum, and it cost them. It cost them something in the game. So yeah, I think again, it's poor officiating. Yeah, I do think, especially for Arsenal, a team like Arsenal, moments like that really change the game for them. I think they're quite. Uh, I mean, Wenger says they weren't ready for the Watford game. Not sure how ready they were for this game. No, um, the poll I put it's out. It's amazing, on Twitter, really, isn't it? It is. It's um, the poll I put out on Twitter said forty-five uh, percent said definite foul, fifty-five percent said never. So, you know, um, they're winning that one. (laughs) Never or ever. Um, I mean, on Arsene Wenger, though, of course, Lawrence, uh, as Dave said, the injuries in the midfield didn't help uh, the Gunners, but there was an inevitability about this defeat, especially, as you say, after that third goal, after that first goal, you never felt Arsenal were going to come back into it. As I said, the title challenge is almost certainly over once again. uh, And you have to say this team bears few similarities to the last Arsenal side that won the title back in 2004. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there was also a really interesting conversation online about how Wenger doesn't seem to have balance uh, physically within the side um, and that he's become a little obsessed with tiny midfielders after Cesc Fabregas um, convinced him of that just a few years ago um, and then left. Uh, it, it is. It doesn't have the same balance, I don't think. I do think it's still technically a, a fantastic side. I do often wonder whether it's... Um, what another manager would do with this team um, and or, or you know whether, whether Wenger can still change it up I don't know if he if he wants to sort of win a league based on this philosophy and I think that's what he's looking to prove um, I, I still think that's it, it shows maybe the deficiencies that Arsenal have right now though because um, there's a few times they almost look bloody minded about it and the team are, they like you say they look like they're playing and sort of they're a bit confused because they they clearly know there are some solutions, but they're not exactly playing those solutions. And it does seem like some of those players uh, don't quite 
like they care about Wenger, but they don't, they don't, they, they still don't quite get why they're doing certain things. Of course, defeat means the never ending finger in, finger out debate continues. Uh, there's a mood of fan revolt growing, of course, on Arsenal Fan TV. Um, we saw some interesting opinions from the usual characters. Um, Gary Neville managed to catch it as well. Um, oh, is on, Gary Neville on Arsenal Fan TV now? He's said he'd be happy to go on after a bit of controversy over the weekend. He on Sky Sports singled out Arsenal Fan TV after the game, said that he witnessed it after leaving the stadium uh, and described the scene he saw as embarrassing. Now, caused a bit of a storm. Um, a lot of Arsenal fans uh, arguing with Neville including Piers Morgan, of course, um, about those comments. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, 100% true. Um, But Neville seemed to upset Arsenal fans because they believed he was suggesting or dismissing the right of fans to have their say. Um, Although it seemed to me that Neville wasn't actually saying that. He was more criticising the level of vitriol against Arsene Wenger, um, who Neville said he believes deserves more respect. It's a... I mean, he does deserve respect, but then at the same time, I think uh, very often you'll find that the most critical voices can be the people closest to you. I guess that part of the problem is that those people don't feel very close to Arsene Wenger, Um, or maybe they don't believe they're very close to Arsene Wenger. A lot of them feel disenfranchised by what's happening at the club right now, and they're rightly angry about the situation. I think Wenger seems like quite an easy target in that sense, though. Um, And the problem is with Arsenal Fan TV, the way it presents itself is... You know, they say, well, we're not a, we're not a legitimate news organisation, etc. But they use all the trappings of a legitimate news organisation. So they have, you know, the branded microphone. They have the, you know, the, the way they present the screen and those sort of things. It, it's clear that they're kind of aspiring to be something a bit more official. You know, they'll work with the club when they can, etc. It seems what, what they want is they they are cultivating. And it's, what the problem is they're cultivating a culture which maybe doesn't serve the fans as well as it serves Arsenal fan TV. Now, it's all well and good having people close and having people on the screen who can express themselves and be very good at expressing themselves. But at the same time, there is now the cult. I think like I saw Ahmed Yusuf, one of the listeners, one of our listeners was saying this on Twitter the other day, was saying it somewhat cultivates the um, the cult of the super fan. So people go on there knowing what the status is of the other fans that go on. And some of them try to... Uh, they'll exploit the situation to... Um, you know, get get their own ends, if you like. And you can clearly see that with some of them. Uh, and some of them hold such sort of, uh, uh, well, you know... Um, sway? Complete, no, not, not sway. I think some of them hold such views which are so either one way or the other that it becomes ridiculous. And it, bec- it makes the club very easy to mock because you end up looking like, you know, you end up looking like a Donald Trump supporter or someone who's sort of is drinking the Kool-Aid and not necessarily uh, evaluating what they're saying. And it, it comes over as a little bit embarrassing. Yeah, that Troops video has re-emerged of Troops sort of being, yeah, I'm always Wenger out. And then, you know, him being next to the car. It makes it, it, makes it too easy to mock the other side. Um, and, and also, I think, you know, some fans, I, I, I often have sympathy for Arsenal uh, fans because I think a lot of other fans mock them because it is very easy. But I think if it was happening to your team as well, I don't know there's just something about Arsenal. They seem to have they've called, they they used to be a really likable side, um, and it seems as if their reputation has changed over the last few years. It makes them less likable. Well, I'm excited to see Gary Neville on Arsenal Fan TV. That's what I'm saying. Him up against troops. I, 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 I genuinely, I genuinely think you can't, you cannot hide behind 
constantly saying we're the voice of the fans. Yes, it's all well and good giving the fans a voice. So do TalkSport, but we know why TalkSport give those fans a voice. And we know that it's about making money at TalkSport. And it worries me sometimes that, you know, the biggest views did come after the Watford game. Um, Robbie's uh, response, I should say, to Gary Neville is, or was... Fans pay their money and go and watch their club week in, week out, up and down the country. Yeah, everywhere. yeah, prawn sandwich. So because they're blah, not blah, as blah, articulate as you and haven't got on a suit it's in rubbish. a Sky Sports studio, they're not allowed no, to no, say that's anything? Not but that's I don't not think... at all what Gary Neville was saying, was it, though? I would and agree. I, I, I would agree. It wasn't what Gary Neville was saying. So Robbie's response is always, and I have a lot of respect for Robbie. I've worked with Robbie, and I know Robbie. He's a very nice guy. Great guy. But it's, there's only so long that you can hide behind... I'm giving the fans a voice. Yes, it's all well and good. But part of your responsibility as a fan channel is to synthesize a quality of conversation, which then gives your fans the platform to express themselves and not be mocked. You have to evaluate what you're doing when other fans are mocking what you're saying. And it's very it's, it's easy to argue that Arsenal fan TV is giving fans a voice, but it's at the same time stringing those fans up. And that feels like exploitation. So you can't say just because you're giving fans a voice, therefore you're right. Yes, you're giving them a voice, but you're definitely not giving them the tools to uh, express themselves properly. And that that, that responsibility sits on Robbie. It also sits on the fans who choose to be on that channel and then choose to express themselves in that way. They have to understand that, you know, when you're going on such a big platform, there are going to come consequences with it. And some of those fans have already seen that. And some of those fans have problems because of that. It's a very interesting debate. It's not one that's going to go away anytime soon. Um, on Gary yeah, they Neville's... should. That's the problem. It's, it, it's, it's, it, they, we, we were discussing this last week. This is all played out. This is old news. This is boring now. No, but this Arsenal is... Arsenal Fan TV is boring now. But in terms of what you're saying, Arsenal Fan TV maybe should be, as opposed to what it is, there's always going to be that conflict between as you say giving fans a, a legitimate platform um for their voices and trying to do as many views as possible that's not something that's going to go away and you're still going to always have this debate i mean i've got to admit i also i feel a bit sorry for some of these fans um because there's also so maybe this is this is a very big analogy and don't take this in the wrong way so when um originally when the Brits went to uh, Australia. There were people who were sort of native there, if you like, uh, you know, the, the native and the same when they went to Canada and the same when they went to North America and the same when they went, you know, when the Europeans went to South America. And those people were ostracized because they held views, which people where they really cared about the environment and they really cared about their way of life. And those people were trying to preserve those things. And all the people who went into those countries uh, exploited those people and, um, essentially used them as figures of fun, those sort of things. And in time, those people had less and less of a voice and had to fight back uh, because they were so disenfranchised by all the commerce and stuff that went over there. And I guess I'm not saying that people are dying off or that they're being killed in the same way, but I'm saying there's sort of a parallel between that and the way that... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The old school fan who follows their, their team week after week is being disenfranchised from the game because more and more people see an avenue to make money or an avenue to exploit rather than preserving something. Now, I'm not saying those people deserve to be preserved, but there is an argument to be made that those people are very dedicated and have a way of life. And in football, there should be some sort of drive to preserve that. I don't think Arsenal fan TV maybe is the right vehicle for it, but it's it's trying and it's a start, let's put it that way. That it was one hell of an analogy. I wondered where you were going there. But, um, but did, it, did it, I, it kind I of I think you brought it back at the end. I think you brought it back. Um, I will say, though, one of the uh, interesting, more interesting fan games I saw recently was actually on Red Men TV where a fan was sort of lamenting the uh, the disenfranchisement and the sort of distance they feel from the club and from football in general. And that was quite an interesting, uh, articulate opinion that was given, and it was on a on a fan channel. So, you know, swings and roundabouts and all that. Um, shall we talk about Everton 6, Bournemouth 3? A uh, thrilling game this weekend, Dave. Uh, Romelu Lukaku hitting four goals to delight fantasy football managers everywhere, no doubt. Um, I mean, do we give Ronald Koeman some credit now? It's seven games unbeaten. Uh, they're not far behind Manchester United now in the table. Adam, I always go down with my ships. What do you do? You not understand about this, Billich? I'm going to go down with Koeman. Keep going. Um, mate. I think he's. I think it's, uh, you know, he's, Everton played very, very well. Uh, I think the interesting part of that game was um, James McCarthy. I think he was positioned on the left, uh, the right hand side, sorry, the right wing, but played quite well. Um, I think it's all about Lukaku and Barkley. And yeah, Koeman has turned it around after a really, really rough spell, what, picking up one win in about 10 games. And now what, he's on a run of um, six wins in eight. So yeah, they've done a, they've done a lot better, uh, but they are beating teams apart from Manchester City that they did beat 4-0. There are teams that they were, you know, they should have they should be beating on paper, let's say. But Lukaku, absolutely fantastic talent, isn't he? You know, 23 years old. It's crazy that he's, he's only that old and he's, he's played, what, eight campaigns. Um, in seven of those campaigns, he scored over 15 goals in all competitions. So he's a, he's a player that will go on to, to great things. Barkley, back in the mix as well. Um, and I think it was just an all-round good performance from Everton and uh, credit to, to Kuma. But it kind of is showing this weak underbelly that Bournemouth have. Um, you know, the, the lack of signings in the, in January and the lack of signings maybe in the summer as well. It's maybe it might cost them in the in the, uh, the race to stay up. Cause Do you mean their lack of, maybe there. their lack of shrewd signings? Because obviously they spent a lot of money on Jordan Ive. Yeah. And, no, you know, they've openly... Point. I feel a bit sorry for Jordan Ive in that sense, um, you know, because he he's he, there's a lot of criticism for him. Um, I don't know. I, 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 yeah, I, I'd like to see him dealt with better because he's still a very young talent. Um, do you wonder whether I mean they they obviously didn't spend all the money on him though, right? Well, if you think about their notable signings, it was him um, and then Jack Wilshire was the big one because they made quite a lot of signings in in last January. And you know, a Phoebe came in. I think another strike him. His name's I've lost his name. Um, obviously, Callum Wilson's a big loss for them again. But he, he, yeah, it's one of those things where you potentially can't put all your eggs in that basket of a player getting injured. Um, that has potentially is injury prone, but I think there's there's not enough 
for me, this Bournemouth team is a bit weird. It's got a lot of ball players in there, but there's not a lot of players that are going to, you know, go in there and put a big meaty tackle in and um, really get the get the lads up or get the crowd behind them. So it's it's a weird squad. It's a weird blend of of players. And again, Jordan Ibe for 15 million quid, that could have been spent spent better elsewhere. But they've had a bit of a poor record of signing players like that. You know, you think of Max Gradle, who was absolutely ripping up at San Etienne, hasn't really worked out for him. Um, I think it's, it's a strange one with Bournemouth, and I just don't think their squad is very good, or their first team isn't very good. They're a good collective. But if you break down them into if you break them down into individual parts, it's not actually at that same level. But again, Jack Wilshire, um, his first assist in, in a long time. I mean they, they showed fight to to get three goals back, but at the same time as you said, they made it too easy for Everton. I mean uh, Ross Barkley was celebrating the sixth goal before he'd even scored. Uh, I do recommend checking that out if you haven't already. Um Yeah, that was weird, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna like this good. I would have gone horribly wrong. If he'd missed after that. Oh, could have gone so wrong. I would have loved it if he'd missed. Eddie Howe, though, uh, his team are winless in 2017, now on a run of one win in eight, and they've conceded 34 goals in their last 13 games, shipping at least three goals in nine of those. So very worrying run of form for them. They are clear of the relegation zone by a total of six points. Um, so relatively comfortable at the moment, but you can see that situation uh, maybe getting worse as time goes on if they don't turn things around. Uh, let's talk... Palace as well, another team in trouble. Uh, a bad day for Big Sam, very bad day. Only one win in seven now for him, and a 4 0 defeat to Sunderland, who are the relegation rivals at home. Um, a result so bad that the, the manager uh, allowed the chairman to come in to talk to the, the, the team afterwards to try and reiterate the fans' concerns. They were called in at 7 a.m. the next day, apparently, to, to look over the defeat, Lawrence. And uh, it's pretty bleak, isn't it, at the moment for Palace? It's not great. I mean, sure, you're demoralised. Great. Everyone come in at 7am. What? Come in at 7am. Yeah, come in at 7am. They had to go through with a forensic detail. Uh, They were looking through the goals conceded. And Big Sam is trying to take them back to basics, according to reports. It's true. Um, I I think Big Sam's also come come up with a squad here that has been um, crafted by a manager who does use some quite laissez-faire... sort of uh, ideas in his management. And so he's come across a team, which is not like his other sides where they need to be gritty. Um, and arguably when big Sam comes with those characters, he's not motivating to everyone. He's only, only motivating to some of them. And maybe that that's the biggest Sam effect at some clubs is that he's not effective at every, at every with every player at every level. It is the extent of that capitulation, isn't it Dave, to concede four goals in one half to Sunderland, three of which came in six minutes, does show a worrying lack of fight potentially. You know, the heads did go down after that first goal that suggests, you know, maybe Big Sam is going to take down Palace after all. I think that he, you know, be able to identify who he can stick with and who he, uh, you know, he can trust and who he can't trust now. I think that's a, a good thing. I think getting the players in. What if it's um, all of them though, Dave? Then he's got a bit of an issue, but I don't think it is all of them. I think potentially he's still trying to figure out a system to play with this Palace team. You know, he went for a sort of five at the back, four in midfield, one up top system against Sunderland. And unfortunately, I don't know if that quite worked out for him. So I think it's still... <laughs> yeah, it was 4-0. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think it's still... I don't, I don't to, think that worked out there, Sam. You know, in terms of him playing, uh, you know, maybe a 4-5-1, go back to the, the old school days, could work. But yeah, it wasn't good enough from Palace. And they were cut apart, but you know... It was really interesting, uh, Yanazai's performance in the first half. His stats were pretty incredible. So he completed four passes in the game. 
Incredible. Um, but of those four passes, two of them were assists. And I don't think I've ever seen anyone's numbers like that, where they've had a half of football, 45 minutes, they've completed four passes, got two assists and picked up a yellow card. I don't think I've ever seen that. And, you know, fair play to Yamazai. He's, he's making it count. He's making 50% of his passes. He's converting those into assists. But no, it's a crazy game. Jermaine Defoe as well, fantastic finishing. What a player. What a man. Um, not good for Crystal Palace. They're not good either. Lawrence for Liverpool, whose poor start to 2017. I knew you were coming on to that. Continues. Just continues. one win in their last 10 now. 2-0 defeat at Hull. Yeah, I think 2-0 definitely makes it sound worse um, than it actually was for Liverpool. Um, I, I, You know, people are talking about it. Um, you know, a disaster, a uh, disaster alarm bells ringing at Anfield. I think I agree to some extent, but I also think that there are very simple solutions to a lot of what's happening at Liverpool. Um, part of it is that I think in two key areas, Jurgen Klopp isn't handling it very well at the moment. That's up front with having a more consistent striker for Liverpool and someone who's going to put goals away. And at the other end, where he's demoralised the defence and the goalkeeper. It is also fair to say that Liverpool um, were playing Lucas and Matip at the back, which is not the, the best combination, but should still be one that's able to uh, deal with Hernandez. And then ultimately Liverpool went 1-0 down and then Hull were able to just sit back. Great tactics from Hull and they deserve credit for that, And as as does their foreign manager. Um, and then uh, at the same time, when Liverpool then push on, then they're very open to being broke on because Milner pushes very far forward to support Coutinho and whoever it is, maybe it's Chan, maybe it's, um, Lana or Firmino that are playing out on the left. And on the other side, Nathaniel Klein, he, well, people just don't tend to break down that side because Liverpool have a very sort of open side. And when they do, then it often seems that if they're running at Matip or Gomez or Lovren, then you leave yourself very open. The bigger problem, I think, is Liverpool's attack right now than the defence. Because um, the fact is that they could have scored more in this game. Sadio Mane came back and I think people thought that would be a big turning point, but it doesn't change a system, which like Dave has been saying over the last few weeks, and like we were criticising quite some time on this podcast, doesn't get between the lines, is easy to just sit back against, and doesn't seem very effective against sides who play quite defensive football, which to their credit works. Um, and the fact is that if you're being beaten by Wolves, if you're being uh, you know, held by Plymouth, if you're having problems against Hull, then it's not those other teams, it is you. And I think Liverpool don't, look very, don't have the pace or the speed to be able to um, or, or they, it doesn't look as if, despite all the players' attributes that they have in the squad, they, they're able to, to exploit those other sides. So I think there is an easy and simple solution. But it, it doesn't seem as, as if Liverpool are playing it. And there's a lot of confusion around Anfield as to why. And then, you know, games like Chelsea, the Chelsea game come along where Liverpool arguably were fine. They weren't incredible. Or, um, you know, the Spurs game. I'd be interested to see how Liverpool play against Spurs. You know... Uh, that that's the problem for Liverpool right now um, is it is inconsistency and a huge part of it is Klopp was brought in to fix that inconsistency and at the moment the football he's brought in is very frustrating I think encouraging um, though I also, I, can I also just say can I also just say one other thing go uh, on I know that sounded more like a rant than analysis um, I think Jurgen Klopp in that sense uh, I saw a really interesting tweet which made me think uh, it's, it was a Manchester United fan that tweeted at Stephen Housen and Housen, uh, you know, is, uh, cultivates criticism sometimes, especially of other sides. And one of them said that the German Sam Allardyce is being found out. And I sort of thought, 
there are comparisons there between Jurgen Klopp and Sam Allardyce. Maybe that's a little bit disrespectful to one or the other. But part of that is that, you know, when Jurgen Klopp's found out, then things do tend to crumble. Um, and at the same time, uh, you know, he, he isn't playing other tactics. And it's very confusing as to why. Maybe he believes in the tactics that they're playing, but they're not playing them fast enough or well enough. Has Jurgen Klopp been found out, Dave? Have teams figured out how to play against Liverpool? I think they've figured out to play against these Liverpool players. I don't necessarily think it's, it's Jurgen Klopp. And, you know, the comparison of Sam Allardyce to Jurgen Klopp is so far apart. It, it's silly. If you, you, you know, if you kind of make those comparisons, you need to watch more Borussia Dortmund from 2012 to 2014. Yeah, but the point is not that. That's, that's no, not let really finish, fair, let me, is it? Finish, let me finish, let me finish. Where Jurgen Klopp was a manager that used to change things up and used to, used to get results switching between different formations and systems and it works out. The thing that obviously that, that criticism just doesn't—it doesn't work for me. It just doesn't work. It's one of those things that's—it's it's a bit silly. Jurgen Klopp, uh, Sam Allardyce are different managers. One's an attacking manager. One's a defensive manager. No, Dave, that's not what I'm saying, Dave. What I'm saying what? is it, that's not really. I'm not directly saying let's compare the two. What I'm saying is that the 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 lack of adaptability which this side exhibits doesn't only sit on the players. It also sits on um, on Jurgen Klopp. And so it, it, no one's saying that they're playing the same football. What I'm saying is it's an interesting anti-environment to, to analyse Jurgen Klopp through. And at the moment, he doesn't stand up well to analysis. So Jurgen Klopp, at the start, started with his, you know, started with the 4-3-3 he's been playing. He did change it. He did bring more attacking players on. He moved Coutinho to central midfield. They ended up playing, you know, he ended up playing four forwards on the pitch. I think he's trying to make things change. But the thing that I think caught Liverpool out, um, against Hull is very basic straight balls over the top of the centre-backs. You're playing Joel Matip next to someone like Lucas Leiva, you kind of know already that you've got a little bit of an issue there. Are those two players good enough to get Liverpool into the top four as a centre-back pairing? Absolutely not. And I think it was a similar thing with the, the end of the Dortmund spell was the centre-backs just weren't playing at that same level. Subotic and Hummels, or Hummels and... Um, uh, what's he called, Socrates, were just not playing at that same level and they were getting beat. They were getting absolutely destroyed by very basic things that as a centre-half you should be able to defend. And I feel that's what Liverpool have got in. They've got a team that's got potential in midfield and attack, but their defence still, it's it's an issue. The two centre-backs just aren't good enough. And it's, it's quite funny with Joel Matip as well. Um, could have gone to the AFCON and, and, and lifted the trophy. Obviously, it's, it's easy to say this in hindsight, but he stayed with Liverpool and they've gone on a terrible run of form. So maybe it was better of him to go and maybe Liverpool to uh, identify there. They've got a problem. They don't have enough depth at centre-back bring someone in in January. Dave, you've retired. It wasn't that Liverpool stopped him from going. He retired because they treated him so poorly. Before the tournament or was that after he... I thought he, he stayed because of the... that Liverpool wanted him to stay for the, the January and he No, he retired. Exactly. He retired. He retired before that and they... and his... the national side refused to acknowledge it. And the way that it was reported made it quite clear I think from both sides that they thought he had retired and they and they refused it basically um and he the reason part of the reason he didn't want to go is because he felt he'd been so poorly treated by uh, the international side or he hadn't been respected or he, he also he felt like he'd been wasting his time with them to some extent well maybe I, think, should have I, gone. I, I also well maybe you should have gone. <laughs> I also, I mean, that's the problem. Wow. Is, that's the problem is, you know, you know, it makes it it's so much more satisfying to say to a Liverpool fan, or oh, maybe, maybe it would have been better if John Matip had gone because he would have at least won something. Then it's good to stick the boot in, and it's great banter. But the, the fact is, it also it it sort of misses the point is that those those people 
I think he's probably one of the best aspects of Liverpool's backline. <laughs> I've just absolutely one matted you. One matter is that now become a thing now after that tackle? You've written a yeah, shit. Not, you've written a shit blog. Do you not see his tackle against? Uh, I've just forgotten who he played Jamie, against. Jamie Vardy. Absolutely fantastic. What I love tackle. it. I love a tackle when someone flips over. In, uh, one, um, on so Liverpool. then, Dave, in, in this in this game, you get a red card. You're off. <laughs> See ya. On Liverpool, though, as you said, Lawrence, they've got Spurs coming up next weekend, which will be an interesting one. Spurs side sitting in Arsenal, second. Leicester, quite a few sides. Uh, Spurs, stronger team defensively in Liverpool. I think it's fair to say. Obviously on form as well. Unbeaten in nine. I think it's fair, I think it's fair to say their system sets them up oh, to be stronger. Yeah. And they, you know, they've oh, had yeah. a couple of players drop out of that system as well, which um, shows the, the strength of that system but then uh, what was the weakness this weekend because it was only a 1-0 I know I'm saying it's only a 1-0 against Middlesbrough Middlesbrough mm. side who are very highly motivated and actually looked very um, compact and had the factors they needed against Spurs but but why only 1-0 it was a workmanlike performance Lawrence um, I just we weren't at the top of our game um, we needed a Harry Kane penalty we've needed it before <laughs> and luckily that is what got us the, uh, the three points seven successive home wins though um, we do play well at home. The problem is away from home. We're yet to beat a top six side away. So I'm not, even with Liverpool's form, I'm not massively confident um, that we'll be able to beat Jurgen Klopp's side next week. Um, just enough for the victory this weekend, though. We're still in second, as I said. Uh, still nine points behind Chelsea, though. Um, elsewhere, we had Southampton losing 3-1 at home to West Ham, who now move into the top half of the Premier League. Uh, the Saints now just... Seven points above the bottom three. Six defeats in their last seven games. Um, looking very shaky without Virgil van Dijk, has to be said. Uh, Watford, meanwhile, beating Burnley 2-1. Um, Jeff Hendrick got himself sent off for just six minutes gone, which obviously didn't help the away side. Um, Troy Deeney and debutant Mbe Niang with the goals. Uh, do you see the header from Niang? It was pretty special. Pretty special. It was lovely, mate. Um, got them the three points anyway, despite a late Ashley Barnes penalty. And finally, West Brom. Uh, James Morrison goal in the sixth minute was enough to give West Brom a 1-0 win over Stoke. Uh, Tony Pulis's side shoring up eighth place now, that coveted eighth place, uh, having lost just once in their past six league games. So exciting stuff. Uh, that is the Premier League wrapped up. And let's move, let's travel around Europe. Um, and we're going to talk our game of the weekend as well. Borussia Dortmund versus Leipzig. Spain, first up, uh, in the Liga. Um, Real Madrid's match against Celta Vigo was postponed due to stadium damage after a storm. Um, it apparently left Florentino Wait, Perez so angry that the Spanish newspaper marker claims he's now looking into quitting the Liga to set up the long-mooted European Super League. Um, have you ever been angry? Wow, that was the... Stadium damage. Have yeah. you thought stadium damage it would be the thing that would push a man over the edge to go and It really did. Uh, the roof was damaged, apparently. The, 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 the Spanish FA decided the game could not be played. Florentino Perez fuming. Um, I mean, if you've been oh. so angry, Lawrence, you've just threatened something you're never going to follow through on, something crazy and ridiculous. What, set up your own league? Yeah. Um, you know. Oh, God, I hate roofs. Oh, I'm going to create hours and hours of administration and difficult meetings for years. Yeah, just um, I don't really understand this one. I think, it, um, Adam, I think you've been sucked in by the equivalent of the sun in uh, in Spain. There's something uh, uh, because they're uh, do you know, I also love the idea that he's gone, oh, I can't deal with all these poor clubs anymore. We're going to have to have only teams with good roofs. I mean, as you say, uh, Marta is a Madrid-leaning newspaper. 
Um, they are very sympathetic towards the club. Uh, the report claims that while Perez doesn't think the abandonment, which leaves Real Madrid with two extra fixtures to play compared to Barcelona, doesn't think it's part of a conspiracy, but he does believe the Liga have been incompetent in not solving the problem. Um, and that's apparently what's driven him over the edge, as you say, the straw that broke the camel's back. So Real Madrid, they're out of the Liga. It's going to happen, guys. Um, just, have to, uh, just have to wait for it uh, to happen. Never. Do you think it's? Do you think it's maybe something to? Um, do you think it's? It's because uh, Perez is a very sort of power-based man. Do you oh, think yeah. it's uh, something to remind people of how powerful Real? Real Madrid are that they can leave the league at any time they want and you guys would miss us. It just seems a strange one. They're still clear at the top of the league with those two games to play. Yes, uh, depending on the scheduling of that game now that's been postponed, there could be a little bit of an awkward fixture pile-up at some point, which I assume is why he's upset. But at the same time, to go to that level, to get that angry and threaten, uh, well, reportedly threaten, such extreme uh, repercussions is uh, is a strange one, I think it's fair to say. Um but as I say, oh yes, no, very weird. Two games in hand for Real Madrid, uh, still top of the table despite victory for Barcelona over Bilbao, three nil, a flattering scoreline by all accounts. Um, but Luis Enrique's side did what they had to do. A first Liga goal for Paco Alcacer, a rare start for him. Uh, what's becoming a trademark free kick now for Lionel Messi and Alex Vidal with a solo goal to seal the win. Sevilla's own. T- <laughs> Wait a minute, Adam. A trademark free kick? It's becoming a trademark free kick. It's from, from a wide area. Crossed it in, straight to the goalkeeper. Well, he doesn't, absolutely bottled it. He doesn't not score free kicks now. We're going to go down now. as Messi's best, Adam. That's what I'm saying. He doesn't not score free kicks now, Dave. He only scores free kicks. Um, severe as well. Their own title challenge has suffered a blow. Uh, George Sampoli's side held to a goalless draw by Villarreal. Why Flesco Madrid strengthened their hold on the final Champions League position in fourth. Fernando Torres with a brace against Loli Leganes at the Vincente Calderon. Uh, Italy, Dave. Let's move on to Serie A. Talk to me. Wait, don't, don't you think it's amazing how many Argentinian managers in the game right now are uh, are just absolutely ripping it up? Ripping it up? Uh, yeah. Well, I was just talking about how the title challenges suffered. Go on, Dave. Well, funny, you say, funny you say that, Lawrence, because um, you know we were talking about Dave's anal- um, analytics team. And that's one thing that we we're going to look into uh, in 2020 is the effect of nationality on management style. So again, really? if you want to donate some money, you know where I am. How many pound coins have you got through the uh, through the letterbox this week then? Since we put out the uh, put out the broadcast, uh, I, I, a 20p came through. Did it? Um, and I managed I managed <laughs> to get myself some some lime um, for my Coronas, which worked out very well. So okay. you know the donations are going well so far, Adam. So the money didn't go towards. The analytics project it went towards lime for your beers. Is that what you're saying? But I was no, no, it was a research bit, wasn't it? So I, right, I got the lime right. to yep. see if okay, there was cool. an effect on the lime to make the beer better. Which potentially you could look at if a player has a corona with a lime in before the night before a game. Yeah, does this yeah. improve his performance? Well blacked, well blacked. Um, Dave talks to me not about coronas, but about Italian football, uh, the derby d'Italia, specifically Juventus versus Inter Milan. How did this one play out? Yeah, another another good game um, from Juventus, you'd say. Tactically, they are very, very good in this new system. Um, the 4-4-2 that we spoke about last week, again, very, very impressed with Mario Mandzukic's work rate, but it was uh, sort of all about Dybala in the first half. I had a fantastic first half, hit the bar with a scissor kick, um, and Inter Milan just couldn't deal with, with his movement, um, with Mandzukic, with Quadrado. But then the game sort of settled down into a rhythm of, uh, you know, uh, Inter getting a few chances, Icardi coming very, very close. Um, and then the wonder goal from Quadrado, um, if you've not seen it, go and Google it. 
uh, after you've listened to the podcast, a, a corner that came out to the area and they blasted it into the roof of the goal. But again, what was so impressive with um, Juventus after that was their ability to control the game with and without the ball. When they had the ball, they slowed it down again. And when they didn't have the ball, they were so compact. It's quite interesting, again, world football, how it is working towards sort of you've got a formation you defend with, you've got a formation you attack with. Juventus are very much defending a 4-4-2, but attack with a 4-2-3-1. And it kind of works for their players and, and really fits their system. Um, and they were very, very good in the defensive sense. Pjanic, Kadira, very, very good. Kadira's, uh, again, under Allegri, has really taken himself to the next level. He's back to that, um, you know, bulldozing, box-to-box Kadira, who's just brilliant at winning the ball back. But into, into Milan as well. Fair play to um, their coach, Pioli. He did try and change things up. It did look like a 3-4-3 a three, three that moved to sort of a 3-5-2. There was a lot of tactical manoeuvres that were pulled from both teams, but you know, it ended up that Allegri got the win um, and, and saw the game out, the 1-0 win to Juventus, which kind of, you know, it's game over. Six points clear now with a game in hand. So, yeah, it's all over for the rest of the Italian teams. It's all about next year, I think, for them to title the challenge. But again, it's a really interesting race for those two Champions League spots with Lazio, Inter, Atalanta, Roma and Napoli. It is uh, heating up a little bit. Uh, Lazio rounding out the top four at the moment. Uh, 6-2 win at Piscara. Uh, Marco Parolo scoring four times um, to get the team back on track following two successive league defeats. Hat-tricks for both Marek Hamsik and Dries Mertens, meanwhile. For Napoli, a 7-1 win at Bologna. Goals galore in Serie A this weekend uh, in those games. Uh, AC Milan, though, slumping to their fourth defeat in all competitions. Um, they lost 1-0 home to Sampdoria, fueling talk of a crisis for Vincenzo Montella's side, who now slipped to eighth. Uh, third place Roma, meanwhile, faced Fiorentina tomorrow night, hoping to close that gap on Juventus at the top to four points. But as Dave says, probably insurmountable now. And Juventus on course, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, because it sounds ridiculous every time I say it. Is it a sixth successive Scudetto for Juventus? It's number six. Crazy. You find that such a hungry, hungry team with so many talented players in there so and hungry. depth in their squad. Well, bringing Danny Alves off the bench, uh, bringing Rugani off the bench, you know, there's so much quality. And even Marquisio off the bench, it's just unbelievable, uh, the, the squad that they've built. And a credit to their owners as well, signing young players at the right time, signing older players at, um, you know, when they can feel like and they can get another season out of them in Italian football, like, you know, aka Danny Alves, Ever and so forth. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good setup over in Turin. Let's talk about Germany. Um, before we come to the game of the weekend, RB Leipzig versus Dortmund, I will wrap up some of the action. Uh, Bayern Munich's winning run came to an end. Um, they were held to a one-all draw by Schalke at the Allianz Arena. Uh, Frankfurt, meanwhile, moved back up to third in the standings, courtesy of a comfortable 2-0 win over Darmstadt in the Hessen Derby. Fifth place Hoffenheim, meanwhile, pulled themselves level on points with Dortmund. Uh, they won 4-0 against Mainz, while Cologne maintained their top six challenge with a 1-0 win over Wolfsburg, thanks to a late penalty from Anthony Modeste. As for that game of the weekend, though, Dave, Borussia Dortmund v Leipzig, off the pitch, somewhat marred by violence before the game, uh, clashes between supporters, um, specifically Borussia Dortmund fans targeting Leipzig fans as they approach the stadium. Um, apparently, uh, Dortmund supporters were pelting Leipzig fans with stones and cans. Uh, the police in Dortmund filed 28 charges, including assault and property damage. Um, so the club, Dortmund, have come out and said they deeply regret those attacks and apologised and condemned the violence. On the pitch, though, uh, what happened during the game? Again, it's um, you know it's a game of, of two sides that play very expansive attacking football. Um, you know, we've already we've spoken quite a lot about Leipzig this this season. It's just one of the teams that play some really good stuff. But unfortunately, they they sort of had 
too many players out injured. Feuchtberg is suspended, obviously, his red card against uh, Bayern Munich. He's still seeing that out. But they've, they've looked really good in in the last few weeks with Sabitzer coming in and, and Keita playing in those wide positions. But unfortunately, Sabitzer was out with flu. Same with Timo Werner. Timo Werner's their guy that's getting the goals this season, 11 goals in the Bundesliga. Only Dele Alli scored more goals um, under the age of 21 in Europe's top five leagues. But it kind of killed them in a way. Kaiser came in. Um, Davy Selka came in and they just weren't, they didn't put that same input in an attacking sense. What Timo Werner's done so well um, for Leipzig's be, you know, it's be that constant pressure, be that guy that's working the channels, be the guy that's not giving a, the centre back a moment's, a moment's rest, you know, constantly stretching them vertically, horizontally, just making, you know, causing a lot of trouble. And Selke was just, was really, really poor. The ball didn't stick to his feet. He didn't run the channels as well as Timo Werner has done. But also in terms of an attacking sense, Dominic Kaiser, who's done so well with um, Leipzig. I think, he's, I think he's been there since the club was founded and he's been promoted the whole way up. The Bundesliga is just a, a step too far for him in terms of his abilities. Technically, he's, he's an all right player. He works very, very hard, but he's not a creator. He's not a guy that's going to take people on, not going to get shots away. He's, he's, he's just not at that same level as Sabitzer, as Feuchtberg. And unfortunately, it kind of cost Leipzig. They're a bit toothless in attack. And for all that Keita tried and uh, the, some brilliant moments of play and some, some nice through balls that he put through, they just didn't, they couldn't get on to the end of it or they couldn't make something out of the, the good play um, from Keita. Dave, talk to me a bit more about this win tactically then in terms of Dortmund. Well, I think, again, Thomas Tuchel showed his tactical flexibility this season. He's played a whole host of formations. And when the lineups came out, he was sort of like figuring out how this Dortmund team was going to set up. And, you know, they started off looking like a 3-4, a um, sorry, a 3-1-4-2 in a way, with Weigel holding in midfield, Guerrero uh, partnering Dembele, which is quite interesting. Dembele has played centrally for Dortmund a few times this season um, and sort of took his chance there quite well. And, you know, the goal that, he created was it was a fantastic individual run. It's something that we've seen from Dembele last season at, at Rons, where he really takes the ball, drives, and gets a great ball into the box. And um, obviously, a Bemiang at the end of that to put it into the back of the net. But then they did switch from that system. They moved to sort of a three-four-three, and it was just so flexible and so fluid. And this Dortmund team, it's weird that they are in fourth in the league because in these sort of bigger games, they play very, very well. But it's against the weaker teams that they've not been able to break them down. So maybe they, you know, uh, Thomas Tufel needs to find a different approach to play these weaker teams. Because it seems every time he comes up against the big dog, it's so difficult to work out what he's doing when the team sheets come out. So it's, you know, it's hard to, to pre, pre-prep, you know, 15 minutes before the game or so forth. You know, the last few words from a manager, it's difficult to know what Dortmund are going to do. So it's difficult to maybe um, inform your players of, of how he wants them to react. But it is against those weaker teams. They need the new ways to break those guys down because it's just not working for them. And unfortunately, if they don't, put those performances in, someone like Frankfurt, who are looking very, very good this season, could nick that Champions League spot off them. Let's talk player of the weekend then. You've been voting on Twitter in our poll. Four nominees. Um, first up, Romelu Lukaku, who obviously scored four goals against Bournemouth this weekend in that 6-3 win uh, for Everton. We also had Henrik Mkhitaryan Day. That was your shout. Yeah, 100%. 100% deserves to be in there. It was absolutely Does fantastic. He? Yeah, definitely. In in terms of Man United, it was a bit of a weird performance going back to what we were saying. Now, the the first 20 minutes, United were really dodgy in this 4-4-2. And then when Mkhitaryan, Mkhitaryan came to number 10, he was absolutely brilliant. Really, really good performance. So I feel like he deserved that. Should have probably got two assists if Marcus Rashford had bagged the cross that he put in. Mm. Marco Pirolo as well nominated. Uh, he scored four times for Lazio against Pescara. And Marek Hamsik also got a nod. Uh, for his hat-trick uh, for Napoli in that 7-1 win away at Bologna. 
a few shouts for Gabriel Jesus as well. Um, some people upset that we didn't nominate him for Player of the Week. Um, oh yeah, good point. That's a good, good point. Good he wasn't in contention Shit. though. And yeah, we put McTyrion in. That's... And yeah, we put McTyrion in. Yeah, I'm sure that's what upset yeah. most people. That um, sounds like uh, sounds like some bullshit to me. Like a. <laughs> It was oh, oversight. No shit. Do we put do we put Joel Matip in for the his performance in the Afcon final? We should. Oh dear. We probably should have put in um, Tom Brady. Dear, Dave, we? Your football knowledge isn't very good, is it? Dave? <laughs> we should have put in Tom Brady, shouldn't we? He should have. Oh yeah, he did some good football this weekend. He did good football. Anyway, in our poll, last place is Parolo. Unfortunately, it was seven percent of the vote. Um, Marek Hamsik, third place, uh, with nine percent of the vote. In second place, I can reveal. Is Mkhitaryan thirty-four uh, percent of the votes, which means Romelu Lukaku is this week's Player of the Week with a whopping fifty percent of the votes, guys. Uh, congratulations to Romelu Lukaku. Um, if anyone knows how we can present him with the non-existent Player of the Week trophy, do let us know so we can get that to him. That prestigious honor. Uh, Ferrero Rocher. I mean, yes. we just need his address to be able to send a pack of Ferrero Rocher. Exactly. If anyone has Lukaku's address, we will send him a nice box of Ferrero Rocher. Uh, Laced with laxative. No. I Robert, love some of these. Why has it got laxative in it for Player of the Week? Why would you put laxatives in it, Lawrence? Well, because um, if, if he makes Everton the other team shit themselves, you want them to know how they feel. Right. Very good. Empathy. <laughs> no. Trying to teach the valuable lesson of empathy to uh, Romelu Lukaku. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> with this trophy, you get a valuable lesson of empathy. Yeah, we should do Please it every week. <laughs> yeah. um, guys, that does bring an end to this weekend's review of the footballing action. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed recording it. Um, until Thursday, Dave... Where can the hole find you? Um, on on YouTube, oh. on Twitter, uh, and oh, also man. come around if you want to get involved in the uh, analytics debate on on weather in Stoke. Please Anyone's do. The, le- the letterbox is open <laughs> to put the to put the pound coins around. Yeah, letterbox was open. The letterbox is open. Lawrence, where can people find you? Uh, I believe there is a seismic and incredibly important podcast episode featuring you up on the YouTube's right now. Is there? Where? Apparently, you interviewed some bloke called uh, KSE. Um, you know what? It was good. Yeah, it was a good interview. If you're interested in YouTube and that zone, then uh, I guess it's over there as well. Yeah, go and take a look at that. Do. On True Geordie Podcast. On the True Geordie Podcast. I highly recommend it. Um, I'm five minutes in and I'm enjoying it <laughs> tremendously already. Um, wow. Guys. Do let us know your questions for Thursday's podcast. You can send them in on Twitter at. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The front three will be back then along with Chris. Until then, have a fantastic week. We'll see you on Thursday.